Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today we're going to look at insignificant, insignificant, the church at Philadelphia. I'm going to begin by reading Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and then we'll continue with the message. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Philadelphia is the sixth of the seven churches in Revelation, and as we come to it today, we're going to learn that it is the second of the two churches that Jesus actually has nothing against, but rather accolades is what he offers to them. Philadelphia was the youngest of all of the seven cities in Revelation. And though it was not a thriving metropolis like Ephesus and some of the other cities, it was marked by its own uniquenesses as an ancient city. It was located further down the plain of Mount Hermas into a valley near a volcano, which created its own significance because the principal uh, economy there was driven by a very large grape vineyard and growing industry and the geographical location made this very critical for its ability to do that but also for something else you see commerce was critical in Philadelphia because it was located at the crossing of several major trade routes in that part of the world for that time and so it was known as the gateway to the east people would come off of the Aegean Sea and they would move just a few miles 30 or 40 miles inland and they would come to Philadelphia where the trade routes split open and there we had the gateway to the east we live just four hours west of the gateway to the west right the big arch in St. Louis well Philadelphia was the gateway way headed the other way. It was a strategic location because of the juncture of all of the trade routes and it was made into a city of commercial importance for that very reason. Culturally, the city was intended to be a missionary city for the Hellenistic way of life. 
What do I mean by that? Well, the Greek culture that was so prevalent in the first century and beyond established these points at which they would make these cities kind of the apex of their cultural models. And when someone visited that city, they would come to understand all the nuances of the culture and maybe take a little bit of it and then take it back home along the trade routes where they would be traveling. And Philadelphia was established as one of these cities. They wanted the Greek culture to take over the world. The Greeks had this mindset that they were the preeminent humans and they wanted everyone to understand and how preeminent they were. That's who the Gospel of Luke is predominantly written to, and that's why it raises Jesus as the Son of Man, the preeminent human himself to the Greek mindset. And so this was a missionary city for Greek culture to take a little bit of heaven back to the places where they lived. Geographically, it is attributed uh, for its economic thriving, as we said, because of the grape-growing ability, and likely that was created by the fertile soil because of its close proximity to the volcano. But that very quality also created instability. Philadelphia is a city that was also uh, destroyed like Sardis in the 8017 um, um, earthquake, excuse me, uh, when the volcano created the, the erupted, creating the earthquakes. And, and as a city, it's been destroyed more throughout the centuries than any of the others, such that are, there are no ancient ruins except for some that were built in about 8600, um, the scholars tell us. Religiously, it did not have quite as much activity as some of the other cities, but it was the center for Dionysius. So the center of worship for Dionysius, which goes right along with that Greek culture. If you remember, he is the patron god of arts and theater. So there was a lot of drama happening in Philadelphia. Thank you. First service did not get that. I think that just comforts me to know that you're tracking with me in that way. And all of this is important, friends, because context is king in understanding all that Jesus is saying to us. As a matter of fact, I want to repeat that there were no ancient ruins in Philadelphia because of the, uh, of the earthquakes and the volcanic activity that took place there. But the city that sits on the major site today, Alasir, still sits on that site, and it is still known for its fresh fruit markets. And the one thing that has lasted in that city is that it remains today as a center of the Orthodox faith. These are intriguing to me because as we walk through the passage today, we're going to see where the Word of God holds true, even above what the reality of the world may say is true in the moment. And these small notes of context help us to take note of what Jesus is saying then and to see how it is true for now. It is imperative for us mostly, though, to take note of what Jesus knew about the church in Philadelphia. So for each of these churches, they're introduced by Jesus in some name or nature or characteristic. Today, He is the Holy One. He is the True One. He is the One who holds the keys of David. That'll become important for us because it's that introduction of Jesus that addresses the issue that the church is facing. And then he labels or he says this one statement, I know your works. Now, 
in every other church but one, this is an on-ramp for here it comes, brace yourself, buckle your seatbelt, there's about to be a collision, right? But not so with Philadelphia. Not so with Philadelphia. This is one of two churches that Jesus has no, uh, um, 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 uh, nothing to, uh, um, I've totally lost the word here. Uh, he has nothing against them. Let me just say it like that. He's not leveling an accusation or something that is wrong with the church, but he's about to issue what he's done for the church. And what does he say? But he says that he has set before the church an open door, an open door. Now, what does an open door represent to us? You talk about doors of opportunity, but doors in and of themselves also represent access. Access into the room. If you want to go into a room, you go through that door, and that door gets you into the room. And so we're beginning to see that what Jesus is saying to the church is going to be important because of their context. He says this, I know that you have but little power verse 8 little power and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name you see he recognizes that the church has little power but he notes that their faithfulness has remained in both obedience to his word and the witness to his name like Smyrna one of the previous cities he does find nothing against Philadelphia even though what they're known for is not inherently somebody's going to put on their business card. Hey, here's weak. That's how you know me. I'm small. I'm little. I'm, as the word denotes, insignificant. It's not so much a calling card, but it's the way the church was known. And Jesus knows this about them. Of everything that is wrong with the churches in Revelation, the church at Philadelphia reminds us that there is something right. And that the one who is holy and the one who is true is identifying what it is that is right. And he is calling his people to that. That Greek word for little, that means small or weak, it really denotes the idea of being insignificant. How would you like that for a nickname? Hey, insignificant, come on over. Let's be together here, even though you are insignificant. You see, what Jesus is saying is he's identifying what is likely true, it, it is said to be true of the church, that the reality in the world seems to be that the church at Philadelphia was weak, small, insignificant. The world probably thought this of them if they ever even thought of them. And because of that, the church likely thought that way of themselves as well. Another reason the church may have felt powerless was set against not only the earthly reality, but the divine commission. For, for the Great Commission was as much for the church of Philadelphia as it was for any church today. And how is it that a church that is little and small, insignificant, you might say, in some people's eyes, would ever make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth? But what does Jesus say? Against the backdrop of what you might perceive as an earthly reality, I've opened a door of opportunity that no one can shut for you. That's what Jesus says. He says, listen, you stop listening to the critics. I've got a word that I want you to hear. And that opportunity is a reference, both eternity in Jesus' kingdom, 
what their ultimate reward will be, but also subsequently their immediate missionary task that Jesus wants them to be about today. You know, it can be overwhelming when you think about this opportunity, the, the size of the context. Man, how are we supposed to have any influence today? Or even the scope of the commission of everybody? We've got to take responsibility for that. And that's even exacerbated when you think about how they felt like they were probably losing the battle and, and, and being defeated in that larger culture war. And how do we even have a voice in all of this? How can we ever make a difference? We are small, we are weak, we are insignificant. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I have opened the door and that door no one can shut. Jesus says something very different about the church of Philadelphia. And he identifies its significance for his kingdom by his truth and by his holiness. Let me ask you something. What makes something significant in the world today? What would you go on? Now that's significant. We measure it by size. We measure it by impact, by volume. You know, the bigger, the better, these kinds of things. The, the, the larger, the more powerful, the, uh, the greater resource, the greater ability. These are the things that are phenomenal. Nobody, nobody celebrates the person that didn't make the cut on the team, right? I mean, hey, did you see the guy that got cut? You know, no. Who do you celebrate? You celebrate the star, right? We, we talk about how many followers we have and how significant it is. And, and that translates into monetary value because those with more followers are able to, to charge more for uh, you know, advertisement and those kinds of things. These are the ways that the world measures significance. And we translate that not only from economic terms, but we often translate that into identity terms. If you are larger, bigger, more significant, you are of greater value. You see, Jesus is flipping that upside down today, friends. And that's what I want you to hear. And I want you to see this today, church. That Jesus calls his church to a life of true significance. By holding fast to his name. In obedience and in the witness to his name. To win the world and to receive our eternal reward. Church, Christian... Jesus is calling us to true significance today. And while I have every idea that Jesus, in speaking to the church at Philadelphia, sensed that he needed to redefine significance in their understanding, so we need to have it redefined in our understanding today as well. Why? Because Jesus celebrates as most significant the church of seeming insignificance in the world. You hear that? The, the church of Revelation, seven churches of the first century. We said this at the beginning. These are not the only seven churches that existed in the first century. But they are seven churches that John wrote to because they are representative of the greater, the larger church in that time. And as we understand how to handle the word of God and apply it, we can see them as representative of all churches of all times, churches today as well. Jesus is making a statement about what is significant in his kingdom. And he's saying what's most significant in the church is all, very often what is seemingly insignificant in the world. That he opens the door 
And that door cannot be shut. Listen, friends, Jesus entrusts the commission of his kingdom to the church of insignificance in the world. Don't you know that people were thinking this when Jesus stood on the mountain with his disciples before he ascended into heaven too? So there's this ragtag band of 12, for lack of a better word, reprobates is not too far off the mark. You know, tax collectors that were thieves. You know, you've got fishermen who forgot to bathe before they came to the meeting. You know, you've got people who don't seem fit for anything. And to these people, 12 disciples that would become apostles and likely about 100, 150 people along with them. Jesus says, I give you the commission of my kingdom. Whoa! Let's find some more capable people, Jesus. Right? No, he didn't say that. And what he said to those disciples On the mount before he ascended into heaven, he is speaking to the church of greatest insignificance in Revelation. And he is saying that to you and I today. Jesus is not embarrassed of the church at Philadelphia. He is not ashamed of this church. But he calls them to remain faithful for all that he has purposed to do through them. The one who is true and holy who holds the keys of David, the keys of God's kingdom. He is the one calling us for true significance in this world today. I want us to look at four aspects of this true significance that King Jesus determines for us. And in so doing, I believe we will be redefining what we understand as God's people, as significant for God's kingdom in the world today. The first aspect is simply this faithfulness and obedience to his word and in the witness of his name faithfulness and obedience to his word and the witness of his name jesus says that true significance does not come from what you are capable of doing for him but simply this what you do with him the most important decision you'll ever make in your life is not whether or not you're going to do something for god but rather what you do with god Will you trust him to receive the forgiveness and cleansing of your sin that only he can provide? Or will you say no to him? And listen to me, friends. For you to go, hey, I like you, Jesus. You're pretty cool. I'm going to hang out with you. And you begin to go do things and, and offer him credit for it without first surrendering and submitting your life to receive his forgiveness is equally as deceiving as rejecting him altogether. Jesus didn't call you to go do something for him. He called you to come to him. And in so doing, we must surrender, repent of our sins, and receive what only he can do for us in forgiveness and cleansing. And this is what Jesus is reminding his church of. This is what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. This is what faithfulness to Jesus means for us. Little power in this world that remains faithful to Jesus summons his divine power from eternity. Jesus takes note of the smallest, most seemingly inconsequential moments of surrender. And even though no one in the world was impressed by the church at Philadelphia, Jesus was. Jesus was. Friends, that means this. That significance is really determined by who matters most to you. That's what determines true significance. 
Who matters most to you? Who you choose to adhere your life to when it matters most? This is what significance is all about. This is what Jesus is teaching the church. And he put the church in Philadelphia on a high pedestal, not because of what they had done, because they became a model, even though they had been refused and neglected and ignored by the world. You see, he was neither discouraged nor ashamed of the smallness of the church. Well, Jesus, we can't do all of that stuff that other churches are doing. We, we've not been able to figure that out. We've not been able to produce that. Jesus said, you know what? I'm not distracted by all that. Whether it's in size, whether it's in prominence, whether it's in resource or ability, Jesus says this, I set the open door before you. I gave it to you. What will you do with that? This door is opened with the key of David. You say, well, where does the key of David come from? What, what is that a whole reference to? The prophet Isaiah in chapter 22, verse 22, foretells that the steward of God's kingdom would be the one who determines who it is that gains access into and who it is that will be denied entry into the kingdom. And what Jesus is telling them is that what it matters most is faithfulness to my word and the witness of my name because I am the one who determines who gets into heaven with God. When John writes in his gospel, he says, quoting Jesus, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No person gets to the Father except through me. That's what this reference is to. And the key of David is the key to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I hold it. And when I open a door, no one can shut it. When I shut the door, no one can open it. It is the church's promise of eternity with God. Friends, what Jesus is telling the church is that his faithfulness to them is what fuels their faithfulness to him. Friends, we need to hear and to heed this message today of all that we can do for Jesus and for his kingdom in all, including all of our cumulative doing and activity, our serving that is so good and our giving that is good, our fellowship and even our own study and ministry personally and together. Nothing makes us more significant in God's eyes than this. Simple, faithful obedience to his word and to the witness of his name. Friends, that's the main thing. That's the main thing. And that's what determines significance in God's kingdom. These two factors. And hear me, these are also the two factors that determine whether everything else we do will even matter for eternity or just be religious good deeds. You see, it's not just about what we do. It's about why. And that's what Jesus is getting to here. He doesn't measure us by the size of our ability or, or potency or anything like that. He measures us by this simple thing. Will you trust me in what I say and to tell the world who I am? The church's significance, our size, power, and ultimately our influence for the kingdom will not be measured by our doing for God but rather by our trusting to obey and follow God. It doesn't mean all these other things that we do aren't important. It does mean that all we do should never become a substitute for the main thing. That it does mean. True significance is determined by faithfulness to Jesus Christ in obeying his word and bearing faithful witness to his name. And that's the first aspect of true significance is faithfulness to the word 
and to his name. And how could we possibly understand significance without addressing success? This is how we talk about significance so much in the world today. But the second, access, uh, second aspect that I want us to see of true significance with God is what I call success redefined. Success redefined. Jesus said the church at Philadelphia redefined success. That those who antagonize the church now in verse 9, they, they're part of the synagogue of Satan. And they will come one day and they will bow before the feet of God's people and they will see that God set his love on them. So who are these people? Well, they are people who, as we saw a few weeks ago, who have converted from whatever they were to Judaism in order to seek governmental protection. You see, Judaism in the first century under Roman rule had been grandfathered in as a monotheistic religion and did not directly threaten the Roman world. And because of that, they allowed them to maintain their religious practices without demanding from them what they demanded of everyone else, basically the worship of Caesar, which means God in and of itself. So whoever was in charge of the Roman world, who was Caesar, was worshipped as a god. But Jews had this, uh, had this out. They had this default out from under that. They could continue to worship their god because he was no threat to the kingdom of Rome. But Christians who came out of Judaism, because Christ himself was a Jew, who came out of Judaism and then became the way, or Christians, they were not protected under the same governmental protection as Jews because the Jews cut off all connection with them. They didn't want anything to do with them. And the one way that the Jews would deflect any persecution from the Roman world of themselves was to blame the Christians for everything. It's those people. And as we saw, the people who were part of the synagogue of Satan are people who had converted to Judaism for one reason, because it would protect them from government persecution. And they were the most ardent antagonists and persecutors of the Christian church in the first century. Because of, the, uh, because of the freedoms that were afforded to them. And so Jesus says, of these people who think they are right and they are okay with the government now, who persecute you for this, they will be the very ones that will come and bow down at your feet. And though they claim to be God's people, they will learn you are the people that God has set his love upon because you in faith, repented of your sins and received Jesus Christ when they rejected him. Jesus Christ is the one upon who God recognizes and who in trust in him grants forgiveness. You see, here's the thing about the church at Philadelphia in the world of the first century. No one envied the church in Philadelphia. They were small, they were weak, they were insignificant. That's what the world said. But Jesus says, everybody will want to be like you. No one envies you. Everyone will want to be like you. There are many different metrics to determine success today, are there not? But Jesus speaks of what will last for eternity. He redefines success from the world's understanding, and yea, even from an understanding that the church of Philadelphia was being influenced by. But the church 
will be successful not because of what they accomplish, but because of what Jesus has done for them and because of what Jesus is doing through them. That's what faithfulness is all about, friends. And when Jesus says, uh, the great antagonist now, you, you need to understand that though they seem like they're in control or have greater power than you, they are already a defeated foe. Why is that? Because they follow Satan. And Satan is a defeated foe. The cross of Jesus Christ being laid for three days in the tomb and then raising or being raised from the grave and ascending into heaven, Jesus says, I have secured victory over Satan and those who follow Satan live in defeat. They live in victory. No matter, they live in defeat rather to my victory, no matter what it looks like in the world. But Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia, those who follow me live in my victory. Friends, listen, we need to understand this today, Christians. This is critical for us in all of our daily obediences. The war is over. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, and then he breathed his last and gave up his life, the battle was finished. You and I don't live to hang on a cross to pay our own debt. You and I live in the shadow of the cross of a debt that's been paid for us. His finished work is our present reality. That's what Jesus is teaching the church of Philadelphia. That's what he's teaching us today. What will be has already been determined. Our success is not determined by our doing. Our success today is determined by his done. That's the gospel. It's not what you can do for God. It's what Jesus has done. Period. At the end of the sentence, the sentence is not going to be edited. It's over. It's finished. And Christians live not in our own ability to win the war, but in the reality that Jesus has already conquered Satan. And in the light of the truth of that, when we live from Jesus' victory, we live by a new definition of success. And that points us back to that door that Jesus opened. Do you remember that door? What does that door mean? It's not merely a door to hope in for one day. Yes, it is entrance into the kingdom of God that when we repent of our sin and receive the finished work of Jesus Christ in our, uh, in our place on the cross, but also in giving us his life by overcoming the grave, that is the door of hope that no one can close. Jesus has opened it for us. But listen to me. It is also a door of real opportunity for you and I to live in today with a new definition of success. Go back to the city that we're talking of. Philadelphia was what kind of city culturally? It was a missionary city. The Greeks wanted to take over the world with their mindset. And Jesus said, oh, it's a missionary city, but not for Greek culture, for gospel truth. That's why he's speaking to the church in Philadelphia. He says, look, you may not have the means to travel anywhere you want to travel in the world today. You may not have the means or the ability to touch every person in the world today. But if you'll plant a seed by every heart that crosses your path on the trade routes that diverge right in the center of your city, those uh, those gospel seeds will take root in the soils of hearts and I'll carry the gospel from you out to every end of the earth. 
That's what Jesus is, is opening their eyes to see a new definition of success for the church to rest in the plan of Jesus for them. This open door that he has set before him now becomes not only their eternal hope, but an opportunity for global evangelization. Friends, Christians do not win or do not fight to win against nor fight to win over the world. We're not against the world. We're for them. We're here to win the world. That's what Jesus is saying to us because of what he said to Philadelphia. And success for us as Christians is not measured by conquering. It's measured by remaining faithful. You hear that? Regardless of what the world says about us, what does Jesus say? And Jesus says... Success is about remaining faithful, obeying God's word and testifying to the glory of Jesus' name to all people. Yes, even that neighbor that might end up actually being also your enemy. It's funny how those two go together sometimes, isn't it? Jesus said, you're not against them. You're not trying to conquer them. You're here to win them. See, Christians do not fight for success because we're not warring for victory. Let me ask you something, Christian. What victory could you actually gain that Jesus has not already secured? He's defeated every power, every principality, not only of this world, but of the heavens. The Christian victory in Jesus is that we wage war from his victory, not to secure it. And it radically changes for us what success means You see, significance will always be determined by our view of success. Whether we live for a victory that we can win, that we can conquer, or whether we live from the victory that Jesus has won and that he has provided for us and the opportunity of it to share it with all the people of the world. That's the second aspect. The third aspect is patient endurance. You see, while the war has been won and the evil one continues to wage attacks that we must endure in this world, Jesus says in verse 10, we won't have to endure God's trial. And listen, friends, if you think the evil one has hardship capacity, what will take place when God judges the world will be incomparable. But Jesus says, don't worry, you'll be removed. You won't have to go through it. And because of that promise, you'll be strengthened to patiently endure. The church of Philadelphia was ignored and antagonized by the world, but they were recognized by God. Their obedience had not only been in simple action, it had also been in sustained endurance. And the strength to endure came from the same word that they obeyed. And this is significant because it tells us that their patient endurance was not simply coming from within them. That their being able to survive was not simply a gritting of the teeth and and bearing it or even a strength that they conjured up from within and got through one more day. No, the power to patiently endure, Jesus is teaching his church, is the same power that, that comes from the obedience to God's word. And by the faithful obedience to his word comes the patient endurance power from God you see the power of God's word that empowers obedience cultivates within us the perseverance unto endurance 
You want to know what significance is? Significance is the one who's left standing at the end of the trial, right? It's the victor, right? I mean, the, the, the victor stays on the field. They celebrate a little longer, right? I'm reminded of my first pastorate right out of seminary. There was a, a little old lady in her mid-90s that sat over by the wall. And, and in this small country church, she had her shawl that she kept at the church. And you didn't move it. There was a thermostat that one of the deacons had put on the wall for her so that if she got hot or cold, she could control the temperature in the room. It was not connected to the HVAC unit. It was just a thermostat on the wall. She felt better about it, so the deacon thought, what's it going to hurt just to put it on the wall? And I remember a couple of weeks in, I greeted her for service one morning, and she said, Pastor, I want you to know something. I was here before you got here. And I'll be here when you're gone. And I looked at her, 27-year-old kid, and I thought, strangely, I believe you. (laughs) So often we make significance about the difficulty of the trial or the test so that we only want to get to the end of it. But God says significance is this, that he is with you. He is empowering you by his word to endure patiently and that you will not be undone by it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, Jesus says in Psalm 23, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, sometimes Jesus isn't trying to get us out of the trial. He's trying to help us understand that he's with us in the midst of it and that his power is greater than it. And if you stay focused on just getting out, you're going to miss the one that's with you in the midst of it. And you're going to miss the strength that he's providing for you even there. Whatever you're going through right now, friends, you've got to know this. Jesus knows. Jesus sees. Jesus cares. He's not forgotten you and He will not forsake you. By His strength, you can patiently endure in faithful obedience to Him. And not only endure, you can bear a faithful witness to others of Him. We have this promise from Him. You have not and you will not suffer anything that can overcome Jesus' power to sustain. When you're at the end of your rope, fear not. The lifeboat of Jesus is there waiting for you. You, you see, that's, that's our, our, our patient endurance, friends. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, you can endure because the word you keep in faithful obedience will be the power and the strength to endure patiently whatever you find yourself in the midst of. Man, that's good news, friends. That's news the world can offer you. True significance is revealed by patient endurance empowered by Jesus' word. The fourth aspect, and I'll close with this one, verses 11 and 12. True true significance is found in our focus on our eternal hope. Jesus said, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus says this, nobody can take it from you. Don't let it go. Hold fast. Because that's what's holding you. It's a promise of unimaginable glory. 
that their presence with Jesus will be completely opposite from their worldly status. Where they are weak in the world, Jesus says, you're going to be a pillar in the kingdom of God. I find this interesting. Remember where I said in Philadelphia that there were no ancient ruins because of all the natural disasters that had destroyed it year after year for hundreds of years. The only ancient ruins that have been found in Philadelphia are from the 600 AD period of St. John's Basilica and there's just a couple of arches barely standing. Jesus said that won't be true of you. You're going to be a pillar in heaven. You're going to have the name of God written on you. You're going to have the city of God inscribed upon you. And and if you've ever been in a big basilica, I went in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome back in 2009. So stinking big you can't see the front from the back where you come in. The pillars themselves are 60 feet tall. And then it's domed in the ceiling. It's massive. Jesus says, you'll be a pillar in heaven. You'll have God's name inscribed upon you. You'll have the name of the new city. There won't be anyone that misses you when they walk in. That's what he's telling the church. The world says you are insignificant. I say otherwise. I say otherwise. Don't lose hope in what I have opened and given to you that no one can shut or take away. Focusing on our eternal reward is always of greater significance. You see, we'll refuse to be allured by any immediate reward of riches, of satisfaction or pleasure, even of power, because it causes us to lose focus on our eternal reward. Jesus says, what I guarantee is always of greater significance. And all of these things in this world will crumble in time, but the hope you have in me will never fade will never perish, will never spoil. Focusing on our hope in Christ for eternity will become our strength to hold fast to Him in the everyday of our life. Christian, where is your focus today? Are you consumed by all the world? It's interesting to me how the problems of this world and the promises of this world both have an innate capacity to consume us And distract us from God. Jesus says, I'm greater than both of those. Live for eternity. Hold to your hope in me. I will prove faithful and true for you. Jesus calls his church to a life of true significance. By holding fast to his name. In obedience and witness. That we might be used of God. To win the world. And receive our eternal reward.